Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is Season 2, Episode number 45, and as we wind down toward the end of the year, I feel like it's the perfect time to stop and think about your practice philosophy, whether it's training philosophy, rehab philosophy, or as a medical and nutrition practitioner, your health philosophy. Taking the time to reflect on these big rocks is a crucial part of success. And so today I'm really excited to share my discussion with world-renowned strength coach George Carvajal on his training philosophy. In this episode, George will candidly share how his philosophy starts with people first and building trust with athletes. George also talks about how strength and conditioning coaches are effectively load managers, the lessons he learned working in collegiate football, as well as his time spent overseas in Russia, common mistakes by young coaches, and the importance of failure in the learning process. He also shares how the other 22 hours in the day impact an athlete's training load. Emotional stress, lack of sleep, getting the training process right are all big rocks for George when it comes to the recovery process. Finally, George shares his experience with burnout, the alarming number of coaches struggling with burnout, and how George built his ideal life around the things he loved first and then fit coaching into that model. Absolute pleasure chatting with George on a wide variety of topics in this episode. No doubt you're going to find some themes here that resonate with you, your practice, or your clients. Uh, As always, you can check out the show notes and the podcast summary at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you have more interest in this topic, you can definitely circle back to a wealth of episodes here from some experts such as Dr. Fergus Connolly, Season 2, Episode Number 2. Mr. Jordan Webb from the University of Notre Dame, Season 2, Episode 16. Former LA Lakers head strength and conditioning coach Tim DeFrancesco in Season 1, Episode 28. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend, Canada Basketball's very own Dr. Charlie Weingroff, Season 1, Episode 18, just to name a few. Remember, you can check out all these experts and more on YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcatching platform. Make sure you subscribe and you won't miss any of the fantastic, fantastic guests lined up for the rest of the year. Awesome. If you enjoy this episode, also please be sure to send out a tweet, share on Facebook, add to your Instagram story, or email to a friend to share these awesome insights from George in today's episode. All right, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Use the promo code DRBUBS10, D-R-B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. Okay, let's get rolling. Season 2, episode 45. Enjoy. My guest today is George Carvajal, a performance coach and consultant who has worked with elite athletes in multiple sports and the tactical world for over 25 years. He has trained thousands of athletes at the University of Florida, the University of Nebraska, the U.S. Olympic Training Center, along with numerous professional athletes in the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, World Surf Big League, and many, many more. George, really appreciate you taking the time today. Hey, Mark. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, that's terrific. And uh, I've been following your work, George, for, for quite some time, uh, since my days back in strength and conditioning. And you know, I really appreciate a lot of the insights that you bring in terms of training philosophies. 
So maybe we can start off the discussion here with, with some of the, your big rocks, so those guiding principles that you've developed along the way. So, and I always believe that everybody should have at least some philosophy and some principles that you follow. And I, I really switched mine somewhere around midway through my career, where I was very, uh, my philosophy dealt with, you know, the, the program design, how do you train athletes and, you know, rate of force development and ground reaction forces. And it was this language that people didn't understand. And I realized that people didn't understand because I was treating athletes as athletes and not as people. And once I switched that focus and that viewpoint and started treating athletes like people first, then everything changed. And that's really my philosophy in, in a nutshell is people first is I try and learn about the individual first and likes and dislikes and uh, what it needs to, to get buy-in with them, which is really the beginning of, of a trusting relationship. And then we can move through the X's and the O's and the board and program design, all that stuff. But um, I started with, and everybody doesn't matter what facet of you know sporting world it is or tactical, uh, military, surfing, doesn't matter. For me, the philosophy is really simple. It's people first. And I'm, I'm in a very, 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 um, very blessed, very grateful position to be in, in that I can be very, very selective in who I work with. Um, I no longer just take anybody. I can be selective. And so as you're vetting me, I'm also vetting you. And I'm doing that because I want it to be a relationship where it's continuously give and take and that we can, we can complement each other. And sometimes it doesn't work. And sometimes you realize you're not good for each other. And I think in the industry of strength and condition, we're working with athletes, especially if it's a professional athlete, you know, everybody seems to, well, we'll just take them on because it's a professional athlete and I can put them on Instagram and you know, I can sure. build my brand and stuff like that. And, and that nothing wrong with that. But I think the mistake is sometimes you realize that uh, you're not right fit for each other. And that's really important because if you're not, uh, buy-in is not really, uh, something happens really. It's not solidified because there's not a lot of trust because you don't really care. You're just getting a paycheck. Um, and they're just writing a check. So in simple terms for me, it's, it has to be, you have to think about the individual and not necessarily just the sport and is what you're doing transferring. That's all well and good, but who is this person? Um, what are they like? You know, do they honor their commitments? Do they come on time? Everybody thinks that, working with pro athletes is it's it's not what you think it is it's a lot of it is babysitting it is uh you would think that at that level guys show up and train and um, are really dialed in and the answer is not really sometimes you have to make phone calls and hey are you awake are you coming to training and that's anybody who hears this that works with pro athletes understands and has had that not in their heads <laughs> yep they, they understand that and that's listen it comes to the territory uh part of that is entitlement and you have to understand that that's part of that world. And if you're okay with that, then you're okay. But it's, it's very different. It's not what you think it is. So, and that's why, again, it's, it's not just them vetting me, but me vetting them. And, um, I don't, I don't want to babysit at this point in my career. I want to make sure that if you're coming to train that you, you have a commitment, uh, not, not to me, but to you. And that means that you're willing to do what you need to do to stay in the game. It's not necessarily getting to the game. They're already there. It's what you need to do to get into the game. And that, again, it goes, it's a long way, long wind back to people first. Yeah, it's amazing how, um, you know, our sports like kind of the basketball, Dr. Peter Jensen talks a lot about how, you know, as humans, we make decisions based off emotion far quicker than we ever do based off of logic. And, and that idea of, of ma being able to make connections, and it's something that I see, and whether it's nutrition or training or medicine, definitely the more the more buy-in, the better relationship you have with the client. I mean, the better the outcome almost every time. So I think some of the listeners are probably asking, you know, if you're earlier on in this game or you're just having a new client, like how do you build trust in clients? Or, or perhaps what are some red flags that let you know that maybe you're losing trust or the trust isn't there? Yeah, and that's a great question. And for me, it's it's so simple that people kind of poo-poo it and say, well, that can't be it. It's like, that's exactly it. For me, how I build uh, buy-in is is – Again, it's that the foundation is really trust. And how, so how do you build that? It's really, 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 really simple is do you call when you say you're going to call? Right? Do you show up at a time when you said you're going to show up on time? Those are the, the little rocks for me that lead 
to the big rocks. It's, it's, I, you can't have that. If I, I can't see that, and we're not there. A good example, if I, if I tell you I'm going to call you at, at 10 mark and I call you at 10.05, um, you'll excuse it, but you will remember it. And if it happens a couple times, there's something that stays and lingers in your mind about, wow, this, like, this guy doesn't either know time or he doesn't really care. And that's we, again, going off what you just said, we're very emotional creatures. So we're going to go off of the ladder. We're just going to realize, wow, this, this person doesn't really care. Doesn't really care about me and my time. Um, and the same thing is if we have a training session at 5.30 and I'm there at 5.15 setting up and good to go and at 6, you haven't even called. Well, I can't really trust who you are as a person, certainly not as an athlete because you don't care enough to be there on time. So those are the ways for me to really start. Those are the things I pay attention to. I don't really look at the big stuff. I look at the little things, which is, did you call when you say you were going to call? Did you show up at the time you were going to show up? Did you bring what I asked you to bring or what you said you were going to bring? That is the foundation of building a trusting relationship where if I, if I know that we have a training session at 6 and you're at 5.55 every single day, I'm already bought into you because you've already bought into the system and what we're going to do. If you're an individual that consistently calls on time and – Never, ever uh, – and we all have situations where we can't be on time somewhere. Or For sure. Something happens with a call. That happens, and we're, we're good with that. But if it's consistent, then th- that's a red flag for me. That that's Those are the vetting processes that I use and I realize. And I've told uh, quite a few athletes over the years, uh, when I see that continuously happen, I, I'll bring him in and say, hey, we, we just can't work together anymore. Uh, love you as a person. We just can't do business. And – and this is the reason why. And it always goes back to those little things of, uh, I just don't trust you. I don't trust you because you're not a person of your word. And it's really simple. It's not very complicated. I think if you look at little things and you start to pay attention to your intuition and how it's telling you, hey, this guy calls late every single time. Like maybe that's not, maybe it's not you. Maybe it's obviously him and that's a problem. But then you have to decide how much are you willing to let go and how much are you willing to, to take? Because my experience, those little rocks really are the foundation for a lot of things that um, go south and go, go wrong. But you, you knew that in the beginning, you just kind of let it go. I don't, I don't let it go. hundred percent. Yeah. It's amazing. Those little red flags, like you mentioned, oftentimes even the, the athlete um, or even practitioner might be unaware of, like you said, they're kind of five minutes late all the time or 10 minutes mm-hmm. late or they don't call back and it just, it that definitely adds up and even people's time when they're when they're speaking with you face to face if they're on their phone or giving you sort of half attention is another little one that i find that can be a, mm-hmm. a little bit of a red flag and, and george on the training side of things I've, I've if we shift gears a little bit here i've heard you mention that you know as strength coaches or physical prep coaches etc whatever you want to call it um you're effectively load managers can you unpack that a little bit more for listeners yeah so i've always thought of that because you know we 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 think of training in respect to you know, assigning loads through volume or, or weights or reps or whatever it is. But it goes back to my philosophy of people first is I want to know who this individual is. And I want to know as much as I can about his lifestyle because his lifestyle is a load. And so if I have an individual, I just very simple, quick story. An example of this is Perfect. I just had a, an athlete who was going through a divorce and his mindset is completely somewhere else and he's, he's, uh, committed to the process of doing what we need to do. But I'm also understanding that he has a very, very heavy load on his mind right now. And it, and it shows, it shows in his numbers and his, uh, the, the things that we're doing, I can see slows, the, the, the speed slow down when we do 10 and 20 repeats. Uh, and I know this is an individual that's very dialed in, but if I don't manage that, if I don't understand if I don't take into consideration the fact that there is an outside load in his lifestyle that's going to affect the load that we're doing on a daily basis, then I'm not really a good coach and I'm not paying attention. And so we don't stop what we're doing. I just manage that load by reducing the volume of the, the stuff we're doing. I don't reduce the intensity, but we will reduce the volume because volume is the killer of the uh, CNS. And right now, his CNS in, is very tapped out. He's in a very sympathetic mode all the time. He's essentially flipped on and turned on. 
So we do what we need to do and we get him out so that he can manage then his lifestyle and the things that he needs to do. So everything uh, outside of the weight room is load is, you know, someone just having a two hour commute or an hour commute. And I have some guys that will, will have that. I, I know that by the time they get to me driving in South Florida traffic, they're already loaded <laughs> sometimes in a good way, right? They're, they're tapped out and they're sympathetically where I want them. Uh, and the warmup is a lot easier when we get into what we need to do and the intensity is there, but sometimes it's, it, it, it really adds uh, a negative load. And so we have to manage that someone who's not hydrated properly, who didn't eat uh, dinner because whatever reason, and he comes in, those are loads. Those are loads that the body's dealing with. Those are loads that the mind and the central nervous system we're dealing with that, that you have, you have to take into consideration. And over the years when I've noticed that I have not done that, um, and I start to sit down and wonder why is this program not working? It's not necessarily the program is not working. It's, it's, I wasn't flexible and mindful enough to realize that this is an athlete, but before he's an athlete, he's a human being, he's a person. Again, it goes back to my philosophy of people first. And I have to have to understand and take into consideration that load in his life has nothing to do with what we're doing. It's everything else. Uh, you know, having to manage three kids and a house and wife and doing errands. You know, these people, these athletes are people. And as people, they bring in that lifestyle into the training environment. So we have to be very mindful of that. And you know, from working with athletes, they're, they're you know, our family men, that it's not just about training. There's a whole other world, you know, 23 hours outside of what we do with them that that is the load. And so you have to take that into consideration. Yeah, 100%. It's amazing how those, you know, other 22 hours, so to speak, in the day are are so crucial for um, being able to manage all that load. And, you know, in your experience in working with whether it's younger athletes, professional athletes, even in the, you know, the military special ops, are there other areas of that other 22 hours where, you feel that can really contribute to load? I mean, I know we touched on the kind of the mental, emotional stress, but are there other buckets there that are yeah, important for you? Yeah, sleep. Um, I, I, I think I've turned a, a huge corner mentally on sleep where, you know, I've always known that sleep is important, and we all know that sleep is important, but they start, starting to understand the why of sleep, of how the brain essentially throws out the trash while you sleep. And if you don't throw out that trash, and again, it's it's a load, right? It's, it's trash bag on top of trash bag on top of trash bag that creates a mental load in an individual. Uh, the more I started to manage sleep, the more I started to realize that um, compression gear and cold water immersion and post-workout shakes and all that stuff, that's all great. But if you're not sleeping, you're not recovering. And so I switched completely uh, my recovery situ- or thinking and philosophy where I try and correct sleep first, and then I add those little uh, other rocks in there. But if we, we can't get someone to sleep, and I've had uh, – this year I've had two guys. Every year there's usually one uh, individual that you, you have to manage very, very aggressively because they're just – they have sleep apnea. Uh, they you know have poor nutrition habits that interrupts their sleep. They're sympathetically dominant, so their adrenals are shot, so they wake up every day at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, blood sugar regulation problems. Uh, so I start l- really looking at sleep. We'll use a simple sleep app, nothing very, very, uh, very complicated. I'll use something like Sleep Cycle. Uh, just I, I want to see if you're going into deep REM sleep. I want to know what time you go to bed. I want to know what time you get up. Um, I'm not a uh, okay. You have to sleep eight hours every day. Some people can sleep less and manage it and work okay, and their load is. Not the greatest, but somewhere between seven and nine is consistently is what I've seen works. And that's just, uh, you know, remembering sure. that I'm just an N equals one experiment when I talk about this. But it's been very, very consistent. Um, you can you can get, you know, I have guys come in to tell me I can, I can function very well in three or four hours. And I put them on a Tendo unit to measure bar speed. And the answer is no, you can't. <laughs> and here's science telling you that you can't. And when you sleep... Here are your your bar speed numbers, which are completely different, and that's that's buy in, right? Once they see that, they they understand that okay, we we have to manage this. It's almost like when we were talking about you know those outside loads and uh, all those things. It's those conversations. Sometimes all you need, Mark, is a conversation with a the guy. They may not be aware 
that sure. what they're doing um, is impacting the training environment. Uh, or, hey, you know, you, I don't know if you noticed, but you're coming late every day. You know, that nobody really wants to hear that, right? That kind of triggers people. There's, again, that's their emotional quality. But sometimes those conversations need to be had because it creates awareness. And the first step to change is always awareness. Hey, I, you know what? I didn't, I didn't know it was coming in late every day. Uh, I apologize. And then we could start again and kind of clean the slate. And the same thing here is sometimes when you show that to guys or you show, you know, maybe an HRV and uh, I'm not, I, I use these things, but I, with a grain of salt, I like to say, because I like to use a coaching eye more. Mm-hmm. I'm very old school, but it creates a situation where you can bring awareness to the individual uh, to create change. And sometimes uh, it's all you need, but it has to start with uh, sleep for me. And then we can add all the other stuff and that's fine. But that is the, the one conversation we're going to have with respect to what we're doing. Yeah, it's amazing how a bit of objective data like that, like a bar speeds or an HRV or something like that is enough to to get that athlete all of a sudden they can really visualize what's going on. And as you mentioned, they, now the, the flip switches and they're ready to, to make that sort of behavior change or whatever it might be. And if we stay on this path of, of sort of sleep in terms of, of football players or the players that you see, I know obviously in the NBA, the NBA nap is sort of a common, is, is a regular thing, you know, that one to right. three hour nap, the games are all in the evening, obviously a long schedule, two to three games a week. You know, what is it like for some of the NFL guys? Is it a similar nap strategy in the afternoon with some of the guys that you work with is it just different because they're playing on the weekends yeah it's 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 a it's kind of all over the place for some guys are very very um they're committed to if i didn't get seven hours then we'll throw in if possible a 90 minute nap in there and i'll send you the uh i don't recall the name of the book right now but it was uh, I was on a flight, and uh, I was sitting next to a, a young lady who kept kind of looking over. I, I was doing some program design, and she looked at what I was doing, and she said, you know, can I ask what you do? And we talked a little bit about what I did, and she was a sleep researcher and told me what she did and said, you know, I have a book, and it's coming out. And uh, we talked about napping. And I've always been sort of a napper, uh, just by default, because I wasn't sleeping well at night. I figured, well, I'm going to try and nap and see if that that helps. Nice. Uh, not really um, <laughs> a very scientific way of doing it, right? Just sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But I learned a lot about sleep and napping from her. I, I now remember the book. It's called "Take a Nap, Change Your Life," and it's. The author is Sarah Mednick, M-E-D-N-I-C-K. And I actually got a clock on the outside uh, where you can kind of dial it and it lets you know what's the best time to take your nap based on what kind of um, response you want from it. Uh, Is it recovery? Is it performance? I didn't really think too much about it. She actually gave me a copy of her book and – I started to implement it, and I started to see changes, uh, palpable, visual, physiological changes. And I started, to, you know, there's a thing, there's something to this. And so I brought the, brought it out, talked to the guys about it, and we we try and get them uh, trained and done. Our, our sessions are usually really early, uh, six in the morning, sometimes five. And the whole purpose of that is to get the circadian rhythm going, yep. uh, and get them to a point in the afternoon where they can take, you know, a 30 minute nap if it's not 90 minutes and get some kind of dialed in and, and sort of recovered. And it seems to have worked really well. I also have guys that were not allowed to nap as kids for some reason. Hmm. And as they got into adulthood, they couldn't nap because they were working or something. And they're very adamant that that's not what they want to do. And that's cool. But then we got to be sleeping more at night. So yeah, it's a it's, conversation uh, to have, right? It's it's a conversation to have, and it's a give and take. It's, I'm not telling you you have to nap all the time. I'm just telling you there's a way to recover and and work the numbers so that you're getting. Maybe if you're not getting those seven to nine hours, that you can kind of uh, supplement. And that's the word I'd I'd like to use with naps is supplement. That's not a a substitute for sleeping at night, but it's a supplement to not being able to get the amount of sleep that you want. 
hundred percent. And uh, George, if we segue here into your uh, strength and conditioning career, and earlier on in your mm-hmm. career, obviously at the University of Florida, University of Nebraska, what were some of the lessons early on that you learned there that have stuck with you to today? You know, for uh, strength and conditioning was not a path that I wanted to go into. <laughs> uh, it just, uh, as many people, it kind of felt I fell into it by um, by accident. It, I, I, I was really going to be an orthopedic surgeon. That's what I wanted to be, and I wanted to go to medical school. And what happened to me is I got injured. Uh, I was a walk-on uh, player at Florida, and after four concussions, that sort of kind of ended my career. Uh, the neurologist, the very last one, said, "You know, you. No offense, but you, you're not a guy that looks like you're going to go into the NFL." <laughs> And I didn't take it as a fence because I was a walk-on. I was, you know, a small guy, at probably 5'10", 175, uh, you know, soaking wet, probably wearing pads. So I realized that that's not the path I wanted to take. So I went into, uh, you know, okay, I'll go into, uh, you know, medical school. I'll, I'll be an orthopedic surgeon, not really thinking that strength and condition was anything. But what happened is I spent a lot of time in the weight room. And I started to realize that there was a method to the madness. Strength and conditioning to me was just a means to an end. It's just a way to get bigger, stronger, faster so I can play the game. And then once I segued into that and started to really pay attention to the fact that I enjoyed that there was a method to this madness, there really was, there's some science here, then I got interested. And I went through the internship and GA position and assistant position and uh, through those schools that you mentioned and really started to just understand that every school uh, and every system has a philosophy at Florida because it's the SEC, it's speed, right? Speed is dominant in the SEC, and that's what really wins along with you know fast-track offenses. And Nebraska was really about power. Uh, that conference was really about power. Speed was not a component that I ever saw, but I saw uh, really big guys moving – people around and creating holes for a running game. And so I realized that there was, depending on where you were, uh, the, the strength program at Florida was very, very, very different than the strength program at Nebraska. It was complete two opposite uh, planets in the galaxy. Uh, Florida, I learned really about the importance of speed and that speed kills. And there was a, a, a way to train speed and, and had to do a lot with acceleration and I know you've had a couple guys dealt with speed and hill sprints and sled towing and the importance of developing first step quickness and ground reaction forces. And Nebraska was really about strength and power. That's really where I started to understand that, wow, in order to get fast, you have to be strong, not necessarily weight room strong, but you have to really develop um, relative strength. Uh, and that's something that popped out in my head there. And I started to kind of put those two together and develop the way I, I do things. And again, there's a, there's a component there that is familiar to everybody, which is, you know, bigger, faster, stronger. But the question is always, you know, how fast and how strong do you need to be? For and sure. The question, right. And it's it, for the answer for different people and different coaches and different athletes. It's, it's different uh, enough to get, somebody so that they don't get tackled if they're you know they're in the backfield and enough to get people moved out of the way because someone's coming behind you to try and score uh so it's 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 really fluid it's my my philosophy with respect to the actual x's and o's and training is very very fluid depending on the individual now and, and what the sport is and uh, what position they play it's very dialed in but uh, those two schools kind of develop that philosophy of you know, speed, the importance of speed and the importance of strength and power in the other one. Yeah, what a great experience, especially at an early time in your career. And I've heard you also mention that you spent some time abroad uh, coaching in Russia. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think I heard you say that this may be the first time that you're on a flight. So what does yeah. getting outside <laughs> what does getting outside your comfort zone like that do for your growth and your mindset as a coach? Well, it was, you know, the underlying current uh, at that time in my life was fear. Um you know, I'd, I'd never been on a plane, uh, and I had never been outside, really out of out of Florida. We vacationed in Florida uh, at the beach, and we drove thirty minutes back to our home, right somewhere in the 
the populated areas of, of South Florida. So Florida is pretty nice, I guess. That's I mean, and it is all the Canadians go down there for a reason. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My father would always say, why we don't need to go anywhere. We're, we're in a vacation place where everybody comes to be and have their good times and stuff. So we, we just vacationed at the beach and went back home. It was never uh, anything else. And, you know, we didn't take a lot of RV trips or anything like that, but it was, everything was new. Uh, it was sort of a, uh, a new mindset of what I'm doing with the rest of my life, which was now strength and conditioning and not just a different state, but a different country with a different culture, uh, living with, uh, a family that, that were Americans, but, and that was the only, really the only exposure I had to anything related to home was, uh, the American family that I lived with. But the, the philosophies also, uh, they're, you know, they're very different than what I had at, at Florida and what I had in Nebraska. And what I learned there was really the importance of the program itself. Not a lot of fancy equipment, Mark, not a lot of uh, toys. It was really about the science of training. And I started to see, really, uh, I was standing in a weight room that was dusty, and the weights were rusty. The benches were held together with foam and duct tape. Nice. And some of the windows, it was kind of like block windows, the windows at the top, it's probably the set of 10 blocks, 10 by 20, were broken. And so when it was winter, you could see the snow come in. It was cold. But none of that mattered. They still produced uh, amazing athletes. And uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was a time when the drug culture was high. But you know, I like to think that everybody was doing drugs at the same time. So, so if we're going to throw that out. To some degree. Yeah, you, you have to kind of mention that. You can't just let go of that thought process, that concept, but it really had to do with the program itself and the science of why we do this and why we don't do that. And so I left with the foundation of science of the importance of uh, what, what mattered and the programs were simple. Uh, they were not complicated and it's something that I keep to this day is my programs are super simple. They're not very complicated. Sometimes I'll look at an athlete, look at me and say, is that it? And the answer is, that's it. You know, if you put 100% into it, then you're going to get the adaptations that we need. We don't, we don't need to go over that. We just need adaptation, right? Super compensation. We don't need to build you into a situation where you're going to be under-recovered. Um, and so it was really um, minimum dose, maximum effect is what I left where, there with. That was something that rang true in my head all the time. It's an amazing experience. Yeah, a quote I really love, I think is from you actually, George, is that yeah, the human body is incredibly complex, but training isn't. You think that's yeah. uh, rooted in your experience in Russia? Or? It very much so, and that's that's something that I, you know, when I talk about, we just, I, I tend to mentor a lot of young coaches now, and I just had a conversation with someone where I, before we even talked, I said, just send me what you do right now. Send me a copy of, a template of your Excel program for one day of the week. And I looked at it, it was enough volume to kill an elephant, you know, <laughs> and it was, it was a high school athlete that he was training and it was a football player and it was a division one guy with multiple division one offers. So, uh, you know, a, a blue chipper. So we call right. In the yep. States, a blue chipper, but he, he was only 17 years old. And so we talked about that concept of, you know, volume and intensity and, uh, do you need this? When I started to question, why are you doing this exercise? Uh, he didn't have a lot of answers for me. It's well, this is the reason we do this, but okay. So can you, can you get away with just squatting and not doing five exercises for the legs? Do we, you know, that's, this isn't bodybuilding, right? There's a, a different philosophy is we're not trying to tap all motor units and develop hypertrophy. We, we want strength and we want explosiveness and we want power and we want rate of force development. Can we, can we maybe chip away some of this stuff? And what I found interesting was he was very married to the method, right? It was very hard for him to say uh-huh. yes. Very, very married to the method that he had learned and not saying that it wasn't 
correct or that was in fact incorrect. It was just different. And so what I try and make people see is, you know, go through your programs and start asking that question is, do we need this? And why do we need this? And is there a better way to do this? Is there better exercises? Can we do less? And so sometimes I've given programs to guys that have only three exercises. And if someone comes again with this guy, when I send him, I will, here's, here's a page of my Excel program one day of the week. And he said, where's the rest of it? And I said, that's it. I don't think it got all through, right? He's looking for no, it. He, he there was a typo or something. I said, no, that's it, man. He says, you have to remember, these are guys that are already, they're already in, in the NFL. These guys are already at a certain level physically that um, they don't really need a lot of volume. Uh, they need some work and they need to be able to develop and, and maintain some levels of strength. But, uh, you know, giving them sex exercises for the legs twice a week probably going to be doing overdoing it and you're going to see it uh when you do some outside speed development work or uh, change of direction and you're certainly going to see it on sundays because your legs are going to be heavy they're going to tell you on monday yeah i didn't feel the greatest and that's on you so you have to be mindful of all those things yes it transfers but how much do we need it to transfer yeah, I love that advice of kind of always asking why. Obviously, works in so many different realms. Again, whether it's health or training or nutrition, you know, coming back to why are you doing that or what is the goal. Um, and for yourself, George, we talk about you know that was sort of a training um, mistake, if you will, from a younger coach for for yourself and your career from a programming perspective. What, what's a mistake that you learned from maybe early on that's really stuck with you over the course of your career? Volume. I go back to that a lot because I realize that. Um, you know, if you if you had an athlete that that you got, or you started working with a team or a team concept or high school team or something, and you're not really 100 percent sure, what do we do? Is we network and we call somebody, right? Hey, what would you do, Mark? And, or, or vice versa. Hey, George, I got this thing, and I wonder if I can get your input. And we 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 do that all the time in the industry. And that's awesome. That's a, one of the best parts for me is that continuous networking. But you start. What happens is you start kind of again. Going back to that term, you start to get married to certain ways of doing things. And that for me was, it seemed like everybody that I talked to and everybody that was in my inner circle uh, had a lot of volume in their programs. And uh, I kept going back to that dungy weight room that I sat with the snow coming in through the windows in Russia and one day just having this epiphany that, wow, these guys – these guys really know what they're doing. Like I, I just realized that. And I was looking at a three by five card, I think it was, where a program had been written for a, I think it was a, someone who was throwing, a male who was throwing the javelin at a very high level. He, was a, he competed in the world championships. And it was, it was a program that took me back thinking, this is really about doing a lot of work. This is about doing uh, a little work very, very intensely and very correctly. And then they, and then they recover them. And that was the concept that I kind of stuck with me as I went through my years and uh, of certain conditioning and working with different people is the volume. Volume just kept coming back over and over and over. And when I undertrained someone or uh, I under recovered, cause I have, I, I know there's the, the, the terminology of overtraining. I don't. I have never seen an overtrained athlete personally ever. I've seen hundreds of under-recovered athletes. Interesting. And that's, that's a whole different situation. Hundreds of under-recovered athletes. I have never seen one overtrained. Uh, and those are terms that that people sometimes. Uh, I think we use Conflate a lot overtraining. A lot, right? yeah. yeah. And I just, the human body is super adaptable, uh, super, super adaptable. That's the reason, you know, super compensation happens. Sometimes you have to redline it. But volume is the killer. Volume is the one thing that will make people or put them into this hole where they just can't recover from. And so that's why when I see that, um, I'll usually start reducing volume in my programs by 20 or 30%. And I keep the intensity the same. And that's something I've, I learned, again, going back to those days of you know, being in a dungy weight room where I realized that you know these guys didn't train a lot. They trained intensely and very hard, but it wasn't a lot. And they, they got results from that. And I, 
I've always kept that in the back of my mind. Even though I've been married to methods that included volume, um, I've started to chip away that by asking myself that question you just mentioned, which is, why? Why am I doing this? Why this exercise? And why this way? Why this intensity? Why this many sets and reps? Can I, can I chip away uh, some of the sets and keep the intensity high? And lo and behold, I started to get results. Uh, and when I mean results, it's I, I started to reduce 40 times, or I started to reduce 10 and 20 splits, and uh, weights started to go up, and people slept better. And I thought, well, there's a method to the madness here. There's, Getting more with less as well, right? Yeah. And that's what it really was, is if if you're going to sort of kind of segue my entire philosophy, everything that I do, and put it into a peanut shell, it's exactly that, it is more with less. It's, you know, minimum dose, maximum effect. That um, doesn't mean that we don't, we don't train hard. We just try and look at ways to train less so that we can uh, recover the bodies. Because at the end of the day, I'm not training weightlifters. I'm training athletes. They have to turn this information, this work, into something that's adaptable on the field, in the battlefield, or you know, uh, on a surfboard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they've got to perform, which is such a key part of this whole story, as you mentioned. Yeah, the whole, team the whole sports is exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. And at the start, before we came on here today, we we're talking a bit about your work with uh, special operations and military. Can you talk a little bit about how? Obviously, the stakes in the game are a lot higher when, when lives are on the line. So can you just talk a little bit about the, potentially the different sort of philosophy or the things that are the nuances that come up with working with a group like that? Yeah, it's very different. Um, again, the, you know, the scoreboard doesn't matter so much. And it, it, it ends up being not wins and losses, but life and death. And uh, I, I train those guys very similar. Uh, the templates are a little bit different. Uh, I try and uh, focus on strength and strength and endurance and aerobic qualities with those guys. And that's sort of kind of like what the weekly template uh, looks like. Um, and I've always found value in acceleration work. I think there's a lot of athleticism in accelerate in acceleration. I think sprinting changes the brain, right? It's very, very primal. Um, and one of the things that happened and happened recently uh, within the past couple of years is I was doing acceleration work with um, some of my special operations guys. And somebody would say, well, they don't really run anywhere. Like, why are you doing acceleration? And I explained the concept of athleticism and why I like sprinting and stuff. But um, I had one guy came back from his deployment and we went out to lunch and he said, you know, I've never really liked that acceleration work because I didn't understand it. I know you said athleticism and make me a, just a better overall athlete, which would make me a better all, you know, special responder. But he said, something happened that I have to share with you that I think, I think we'll, you, you might be able to use this at some point. I said, sure. What was it? And he said, they were clearing uh, a village and it was a group of, um, I think, I think his group was a total of sixteen guys, but eight, eight were clearing this this village, and they got pinned by a sniper. And again, you know, this isn't wins and losses. This is, this is the real deal, right? Yeah, for sure. You're getting shot at by somebody who wants to kill you, minimally, at, at minimum. And they were pinned down, and there was a blown-out part of a house that was probably a couple meters away. And part of the tactic was that they were going to open fire where they thought the sniper was, and they were each going to run to this little area that afforded them the, the most protection because they were pretty much, like he said, sitting ducks. They were uncovered. And they were trying to hide you know, behind... Uh, you know, one was a dead cow street, which doesn't offer much protection. Wow. What happened is he basically, uh, when it was his turn, he went from point A to point B, and he realized that it was the fastest he had ever run. Now, granted that part of the story is I'm getting shot at. I'm going to run pretty fast. 
but he said it wasn't because I asked him that. And he said, no, it wasn't that. It's, I, I, it's like the value of the acceleration work that we were doing actually came into play. And I never thought it would. But I could see I felt different how I ran and how I pushed off, right, and pushed back against the ground. And these are terms that we'd use all the time, time push back, push back, push fast, push hard which is just acceleration. Well, he did the same thing running from one point A to point B so he wouldn't get shot. And he made it, obviously, because we were having lunch and talking about it. But that was that was mind-blowing to me because I knew, I knew there was value in it uh, just from the athleticism standpoint. I never thought in a million years it would actually be used to actually get someone to a position where uh, you know, life would continue for them and it wouldn't end at that, you know, that dark, dirty street somewhere, you know, 10,000 miles away. So the philosophies are similar. I do some similar things with them. Uh, what changes is recovery is a, is a big tool, uh, the mental and the physical recovery. So uh, uh, something else that happened recently was I started working with one of the guys who came back from deployment and something was wrong and it wasn't working and no matter what I did, it just didn't, didn't seem to work. And uh, we were very open with each other, very trusting with each other. And um, I asked, hey, something else happened in this deployment because there's, you're off, man. There's something wrong here. And he managed to tell me what, it, what had happened. It was pretty horrific. It was pretty awful. And it scarred him psychologically. And I realized, again, this is load that we're talking about, right? There's this huge psychological load that was impacting what we were doing. And so I remember going back to my office and I had his program on a dry erase board. And I took my hand and I wiped off the program completely off. I just took it off the dry erase board. And I realized that I'd have to start from scratch. That this program that I had spent months working on so that when they came back from deployment, we were ready to go, didn't work anymore. Uh, I'd have to be fluid. I'd have to be flexible and I'd have to start over. And it was a very, very different program. It was a recovery program that we did to get him to a point where he could actually start using weights and sprinting and doing the things that we normally did. But it started with, um, meditation. It started with, um, and just walking for aerobics. That was it. That was the program for a special operator because of the load that he had outside of what we were doing, I realized that anything I gave to him was going to overload him and then under-recover him. He was already under-recovered. He was sleeping two hours a night, one hour sometimes. And so that was the value of that is understanding that you have to be fluid and flexible as a coach in, in your program design when the load of life starts to take over and it, it impacts the load of what you're doing. And very valuable lessons from the military and special operations that I use with everybody else now is when I see that happening, then we start reducing volume and we start recovering the athlete. We start using more modalities to improve recovery so that we can kind of beat them up again and then, you know, get them to adaptation and super compensation and, and whatever it is that we're doing gets, gets the transfer. But there's two, it's very, very different than, than the other guys, again, because of that life and death component. Yeah. I mean, what a great example of as you said, being nimble, being adaptable, being fluid as a coach to be able to really see what's in front of you and then, you know, respond to that despite having, you know, made other plans and mm-hmm. developed a plan and everything else obviously speaks what, to the importance of that, the right? The difference now, Mark, is that I'm not married to those things, right? For sure. I, I'm okay with realizing that, you know, I spent, it spent a lot of time not just developing the program, but I spent a lot of time also writing it up on the dry erase board. Uh, so I could see it every day and we could start changing things. And even though I had it on my computer, it was really, uh, I, I didn't have a problem with what I did. I, I think maybe five, six years ago, that wiping of that dry erase board would have never happened I, because I spent so much time on it. But I realized that it had no value anymore. And so I simply erased it with the intention of whatever I'm going to put on there now is going to have value. So I just need the space. Yeah, it's great, great insight. And you mentioned there, um, for those particular folks, and especially in the military, sympathetic overdrive, uh, getting into meditation, things that can help to calm um, that overdrive. And of course, getting back to nature, whether it's anxiety, things like that is really important. I know you're a big uh, surf guy. Can you 
kind of talk a little bit about just just what it's what getting back to nature does for you and how that can influence you know your own health and even your your coaching yeah i think you know i when i i got to a point where you know i experienced burnout uh, as a coach and what i did the mistake i made was that i built a life around coaching um and what does that look like well it looks like this i was always working um i didn't surf i didn't do you know, i didn't bow hunt i didn't do jujitsu i i didn't do the things i loved because i didn't have time and that was always my excuse is i just don't have time so i built this great coaching practice and kind of a sidebar was my life and that led to a massive burnout. And once I got to that burnout, I realized I could not, I couldn't go back to coaching the same way that I was coaching. I, something had to change. And uh, I resigned from the position I had, and I had little money. And so I bought a ticket to Bali and essentially surfed every day in Bali. The whole point being, I wanted to expand my mental space, right? Reduce load. I didn't have any load. I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have a job. Um, Living in very meager conditions, having a meal or two a day. So I wasn't worried about anything. And what that created was nothing but this expansive space in my brain to think about what the next step looked like. And I started first with thinking, where do I want to live? What does that look like every day? And I put down some things on a piece of paper and I realized I was actually living where I wanted to live, which is Fort Lauderdale. Uh, it afforded me the environment to pursue the things I wanted to, which is really surfing. And then what, what coaching would look like. And I realized I did not want to go and work at a facility, nor did I want to go back to work for a team where I would lose who and what I was, which is what happened before. And I realized I'd probably look more like consulting and some coaching. And that's exactly what I sort of kind of developed. And from, from those ashes um, is what Carvel Hall performance uh, rose out of is understanding that I needed to do something different. And what I did was I built a coaching practice around a life. And it's completely opposite of what I was doing. And that included uh, surfing on most days when the swells were in, uh, it included doing, doing jujitsu and pursuing, um, higher levels, not to reach higher levels or a higher belt, but the knowledge that came from each step in the process. Definitely. And, and then coach, but coach the way I wanted to, when I wanted to. And I realized that, uh, it was going to be a peaks and valley type of years, Sometime during the year, I would be working 60-hour days and seven days a week, and I was okay with that. I allowed for that. And some parts of the year, um, I could surf a lot. I could go on bow hunting trips. I could do jiu-jitsu twice a day and coach minimally, and sort of that's what I built it. And so the going back to nature for me is <clears throat> it's, it's, it's a must for me personally in my life. It just creates space for me to be able to think and it reduces load, not just mental but physiological load. Um, there's there's a reason the Japanese have forest bathing, right? It's, it's a very big part of their philosophy and you'll see it in hospitals now where they have, they have these rooms where the walls are covered with bamboo or forest pictures. And they'll have these chairs where you can kind of block out light and just sit back and just enjoy that, that concept of recovery, right? Mind, body, soul. And so that's what, to me, what, what surfing does is it, when I'm out there, I'm not thinking about coaching or bills or what's the next thing to do. I'm just looking for the next wave and the next wave after that one and the next wave after that one. And that has a way of clearing your brain that allows in this expansive space to happen where there's nothing but possibilities, nothing but possibilities in life, nothing but possibilities in coaching. And, um, you know, I built the kind of life that I wanted to live. Um, it, it happened accidentally after burnout. It wasn't that I planned it that way. I just, I knew I couldn't go back to what I was doing. Um, and I, I've been asked a couple times, 
you know, would you go back to team sports and working in that environment? And that's a good, that's a very good question. And that would have to be, um, it would have to be a win-win situation for me. The culture would have to be important. The money would not be important, Mark. It would be, um, who am I working with? Is it a culture of guys that really want to take it to the next level with these athletes and, and make them the best that they can? Um, money aside, I could care less about the money. But it would have to be the right situation, the right environment. And I'd have to be able to surf. Uh, that's just something that's important for me. Uh, I, I don't want to go back to that point where I don't remember the last time I, I surfed. Um, I have probably 20, 20 boards in my garage now, all used all using every single part of the world. And I've been able to coach during that time. So the value of being able to go back to nature with just the mind and the body is I keep preaching it, not just to other athletes, but really to coaches. And when I mentor somebody is that's really important is what are you doing for you? How do you, how do you disconnect? And don't tell me go to the gym because that's not it. Everybody thinks, well, especially if you, you work in a gym, <laughs> right? I disconnect by going to the gym. It's like, well, you work in the gym. That's that doesn't work. And how's that working for you? And the answer is not very well. So the importance of you know picking up a hobby, whatever that is, is it music? Is it archery? Yeah, do you want to go? I, I push a lot of guys into jujitsu because there's a, such a great learning environment and humbleness that the mat teaches you, which is the same humbleness that I learned from the ocean. You, know, you turn your back on a wave and you're going to get crushed. Uh, if you, if you think in terms of someone's size, when you get on a mat, you're going to get choked out. And so those things teach the humbleness that comes with, uh, and has, has improved my coaching, you know, exponentially. And it's, it's all sort of kind of a back to nature approach with coaching. And, and you'll have some guys hearing this that, you know, do work 50 or 60 hours a week and can't even think of getting lunch, let alone, putting in time for a hobby and stuff. And I'm not saying they're doing it wrong. I just think there's a better way. Yeah. I think it's a great, um, you know, a great lesson, a great tip, a great insight for people who are, you know, the stats around even doctors, family physicians, you know, 50% wouldn't even recommend the profession to their, to their friends or, or family. Uh, you know, burnout's high. You get trainers, as you mentioned, getting up first thing in the morning, not home till late. And of course, these people love their their professions. Even parents, obviously, as you get young kids, and all of a sudden there's not enough sleep. There's you don't get to see your friends. So I think that's that idea that you mentioned there of kind of really focusing on on what you want and building your life around it. I think is a great uh, place for people to start. And do you think trainers and clinicians or practitioners can folks do that right when they're even when they're younger practitioners, or is that something that comes as you gain experience and have the leverage? I think I think it's easier, obviously, if you're a graduate from college you're a single guy and you live in an apartment right the world is your oyster you can do anything you want For um, sure. w- once you get married and once you start having kids life changes and you don't necessarily control your life anymore so if you if you're interested in grinding if you know that's what you want to do as a coach and you, you know more power to you what i'm saying is that at some point you're going to be me uh, if i told you mark in the last I probably say last three years, how many coaches have reached out to me and sort of secretly had a conversation about burnout and where they were and how unhappy they were? You wouldn't believe me. It's a lot. It's it's a lot. Um, and that tells me that there's something wrong. Right? Um, we're, we're enamored with this word beast mode and grinding. And I'm the guy who was at the end of that. And I can tell you it's not good. Um, I had, you know, I, I didn't stop. Uh, I knew it was a point where I was completely burnt, but I didn't stop until I had physiological changes. And they weren't good changes. And there are many changes that in many ways I still have today and I've not been able to overcome. It seemed like I changed my physiology to a point. I'm fairly recovered. I'd say 98%, but there's that 2% I could never recover from. That I did some damage, um, and that was because I was a grinder. That's because that's I wanted to attain that next level. I wanted to have a team polo that had an, a, you know, an NFL emblem on it, and that's how I marked success. And at the end, when I realized that that really wasn't what it was, I started to realize that 
you know, that's, that's not what I want. And that's not what the profession is. It's, we, we somehow glorify grinding. That's, you know, if you're not grinding, you're, you're not real. Like you don't represent the brand. And, uh, I'm here to tell you that that's not necessarily the truth. And that will lead to that point where you're going to make a phone call to somebody and say, Hey man, I'm, I'm unhappy. Uh, I love to coach. I just, I don't like to coach the way I'm coaching right now. Like I don't see my kids. I can't put them to bed. I, I don't do homework. It's, you know, my wife's the one that does that. And weekend games, you know, I'm away. I, I can't coach my kid. All those things are load, right? We go back to that concept of those things outside the weight room that create load. And um, I think we have a lot of loaded coaches, in the profession, um, and not necessarily good load. Is they're overworked, they're underpaid. That seems to be two caveats that you'll you'll see in strength and conditioning is that people that are completely overworked. I'm not saying they don't like their job. I'm saying that they don't love their job. I'm just saying that sometimes it's it really doesn't lead to a lot of good things. I I can only tell you two people, uh, and this is this will be my 27th year in coaching that I know retired as a strength conditioning coach. Two. Uh, I've known thousands. Wow, that's a problem, right? There's there's something that we're we're missing something there. If you go to any other profession, police, fire, someone in business, a lawyer, you you can see this group that retire from that profession. You don't see very many strength conditioning coaches that retired as a professional strength coach. Uh, they segue into something else because at some point, the that that enamored feeling that they had for the profession goes because they they're just burnt out and they just disappear and you wonder where you know this this individual went well they disappeared because they just they were done and they're probably not even in coaching anymore and that's a conversation i've had i've had too many of those this past year probably 50 or 60 at least wow. off the top of my head where guys said i'm, I'm done with coaching george i just i, I can't do this anymore and the problem is that I don't know what else to do because this is what this is the only thing I've ever done. And so we talk about reinvention and what does that look like for you? What are the possibilities of staying in the coaching profession but making it look differently? Is it consulting? Is it working for a minor league team versus a major league team? Right, the requirements are different. Uh, the expectations are different. It's really about you know, managing your life is what is it that you want to do is you want to coach and grind and work 60 hours. You're, you're going to find a place that will do that, give you that opportunity. You're probably not going to get paid that well, but you're free to do what it is that you want. Or do you, or do you want a life where you can, uh, you know, spend some time with your kids and your wife and go on dates and have some vacations and still enjoy coaching? And the answer is yes, you can but it probably doesn't look the way that you think it looks. It's probably not going to be working for somebody else. That's going to be more like you working for yourself. Yeah, absolutely, George. I mean, awesome, awesome insights here. Thank you so much for taking your time for coming out and want to respect your time here. So uh, last question for you, kind of circling back to coaching. You know, for yourself and, and over the years and working with so many different great coaches, you know, what, what's a common characteristic of being a great coach? I think being flexible. You know, if you asked me that maybe a couple of years ago, um, I'd tell you probably something different. But that that situation with the special operations guy, and his his PTSD and his burnout uh, really changed me a lot. Uh, it hit me deeply because I realized that I had been flexible before, but the the flexibility was, you know maybe helping someone gain two tenths, uh, you know, a second here, there, uh, this was different. This was, if we didn't adapt and we weren't flexible, this individual was probably not going to survive. And that's, the, that's really heavy, right? Yeah. That's, that's super. The responsibility there is, is big. And I realized that that was the difference is I had to, I had to do something different that, that ability to be flexible, um, has really, really helped me in, in all aspects of who I am, not just a coach, but who I am as a man is understanding that, you know, life doesn't always go your way. You have to, you have to be flexible. And I think it's a really, really valuable characteristic to have as a coach is you're, you're going to get into situations where it's not what you thought it was. 
um, and you're going to have to adapt and overcome. And that's that's flexibility and that's fluidity within your personality, within your emotions, within your thinking process, your mindset that then allows for uh, the glass that's half empty to look half full. Yeah, great advice, George. Uh, fantastic. Like I said, I've been following you for quite a few years, so great to finally connect and uh, and get you on here. And and you know, where can all the listeners stay connected with you and keep up with all your uh, fantastic work and research? I mean, for me, uh, the easiest way to connect is on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, all my other social media is really to keep in touch with family and stuff. And uh, sometimes I'll post stuff up to Instagram. I'm not really, really active there. But yeah, Twitter um, is probably the easiest way uh, to connect. If you want to DM me or uh, just connect that way, introduce yourself and we can, uh, you know, go back and forth. That's probably the easiest way. Awesome. We'll definitely include that link uh, here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Uh, thanks again for everyone else tuning in as well. If you have any questions for George or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Definitely keep those questions coming. And of course, if you enjoy the show, please take a minute, head over to YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform and subscribe. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.